You've been there before, in the exam room of your doctor's office. You changed into a hospital gown, maybe a bit anxious, feet dangling. Nobody likes going to the doctors. It can be a scary place. We're at our most vulnerable there. But we've been taught since grade school to trust the guys in the white coats, to trust medicine and those who prescribe it. But some physicians abuse that trust. Just ask the thousands of patients, mostly women, all over the country, who have been sexually assaulted behind the closed doors of a doctor's office. Thousands of unconscious patients, people with mental illnesses, rape victims, all abused by the most trusted people in our communities. I think those cases where we, again, saw a pattern of a physician targeting a very vulnerable person uh, over and over and getting away with it, those were cases that we felt like really deserved um, close attention. A team of investigative journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution spent more than a year uncovering a national phenomenon of predator doctors, almost all men. They've been accused, caught, and reprimanded. But in many cases, that was the end of it. The AJC found a system of internal discipline and complicated bureaucracy that prioritizes doctors' careers over patient safety. Abusive physicians rarely go to jail or even face criminal charges. Hospitals and medical boards suspend, move, or, quote, rehabilitate white coat sex offenders all over the country. And many of those repeat abusers are still practicing. In today's episode, we hear from two members of the AJC team who told the secret story of sexually assaulted patients and the physicians who have gotten away with it until now. I'm Brett Murphy, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. on a lot of investigative projects over the years. This was by far the most collaborative um, large team project that I've ever worked on. And it required, you know, a lot of constant conversation between um, every, every player in the group. That's Carrie Teagarden, one of the lead reporters AJC devoted to its series published last month. A core team of seven worked full-time scouring the country for cases of sexual assault in the private world of healthcare. Cases buried in millions of medical board reports. Such a massive undertaking was a rare commitment for a paper that usually only covers Georgia and the South. I think that we are a regional newspaper, but we've had experience over the years and the ambitions to do national stories. And in part, after we got into it, I think we all realized why it hadn't been explored nationally to this degree or very often, because it's very, very hard to do the research. That research began with a single case. One of the journalists, Danny Robbins, had been reporting on a local doctor who had a history of sexual indiscretions, but still remained a licensed physician in his home state. He started noticing that there were quite a few doctors in Georgia who had been publicly disciplined for sexual misconduct, and he also noticed that um, in the majority of the cases, they were being returned to practice. So that just struck him as really interesting. And, and he, after going through the documents, was able to determine that two out of three Georgia doctors, again, who had been pu- publicly disciplined, were allowed to practice again. Questions started swirling around the newsroom. Could it be just a Georgia problem? Why hadn't anyone heard of this before? 
And how could two out of the three bad doctors still be practicing when the whole purpose of medical boards was to revoke bad licenses? The reporters started by filing requests for discipline records in other states, who collectively shrugged in response. They said those records apparently aren't available. That didn't sit well with AJC's data reporter, Jeff Ernsthausen. Many of the records were housed online, which made them technically accessible, even if the agencies weren't willing to just hand them over. So he wrote a web scraping program to grab and analyze millions of medical board records from various websites. He got back thousands of cases involving sexual assaults. And at the end of the day, Jeff found at least 3,100 different doctors with a history of sexual misconduct, many of whom are still practicing around the country today. The reporters knew they had a national story on their hands. Each medical board order that you read was in itself its own very um, uh, emotionally charged story. You know, you have a victim or a number of victims in every case. You have a physician who spent many years um, building it and creating a career who's um, very, you know, career is, is often on the line. It's, it's, it's each one was in, in just reading these medical board orders um, was difficult. And we found that even, you know, we were reading dozens, hundreds of them each. It's really an old fashioned task where you read a bunch of documents. Yeah. Just sort of the traditional uh, sit down. Yeah. But in yeah. chair. You get a big old giant cup of coffee, sit next to somebody that you can talk with about what you just read. Each attack seemed more egregious than the last. Like Danny first reported in Georgia, male doctors exploited their patients' trust and counted on a culture of silence. Each case had its own power and, and interest and, and um, raised questions for us. So I would say that, you know, the, the, the stories were... Um, um, very powerful, and and um, obviously in, in investigative reporting, and you're always uncovering stuff that's very powerful and interesting and deserves scrutiny. But I would say this definitely ranked up there for me uh, in all these years of reporting of of things that um, we'd never seen anything really like this before. The paper didn't censor any of the graphic details. These were quote rapes by OBGYNs, seductions by psychiatrists fondling by anesthesiologists and ophthalmologists, and molestations by pediatricians and radiologists. The wording was an editorial decision to reflect the weight of what was happening. The reporters wanted readers to understand these weren't just inappropriate comments or misunderstandings. They were crimes. Many of the victims the reporters talked to wanted to remain anonymous. Scenes played out in records and testimonies, some dating back years. So actually knowing what these women felt became a challenge for the AJC team. A couple women came forward to tell their stories in interviews and agreed to be photographed, but a few portraits didn't really capture the magnitude of the story, the scope of the victims. Enter graphic illustrator Richard Watkins. You know, with some of the investigations that, you know, some of some of the best journalists in, in the world are out there doing, it's becoming harder and harder to get access to uh, images. And so, you know, because of the sensitive nature of, of an investigation or uh, because, you know, um, just sometimes there aren't, you know, like detailed records of, of a scene or, you know, detailed records for an artist to really draw from, um, I feel like, you know, doing a graphic novel approach, it really helps to uh, sort of sometimes humanize the story. 
Each chapter in the series, print and digital, has noir, comic book-style panels of illustrations. Wordless and faceless, Richard's images capture those dark moments a photographer couldn't. Illustrations like this have become a popular storytelling tool for investigative outfits, especially when stories come with a deep history or really sensitive material. Check out ProPublica and the Marshall Project's unbelievable story of rape for another example. Good illustrations can be more than decorations or props. They breathe life into a scene where words sometimes fall short. The way I kind of mapped this out in my head was, um, one, I wanted to kind of put people right in the middle of whatever a victim was describing or whatever, whatever a doctor was, was describing, trying to basically paint the scene as accurately as the as I could possibly as I possibly could. Um, one of the challenges of it was, given that this is a uh, a a journalistic investigation, very deep. Uh, I had to be as accurate as possible, so there was no artistic liberties I could take or anything of that nature. If a victim was describing a doctor visit she had. Um, you know, me as the visual artist, I had to know whether she wore a skirt to that visit or, or whether she wore pants. I had to know if she was asked to uh, disrobe and put on the uh, exam room gown or whether she, you know, was asked to disrobe and not put on anything. Richard, who also helped design the digital version of the story, joined the team early in the reporting process, digging into the documents and transcripts, looking for those visual details. He even went over some of the sketches with the victims and doctors to verify their accuracy. I, as an artist, I didn't need to do anything to, to make the images look sinister. Just illustrating exactly what happened sort of gave you that mood already the minute you saw it. And while he couldn't put himself in victims' shoes, Richard was able to draw on recent personal experiences to help him recreate those moments. A year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with uh, stage 3 colorectal cancer. And with all of the uh, exams and tests and doctor visits that I had, before I even really knew that I was going to be involved with this investigation, uh, I was able to think back on a lot of what I saw or experienced um, while visiting several doctors. Um, you know, whether it was the color of, uh, of an exam gown, whether it was the color of the office, uh, the tile on the floor, you know, what the uh, exam gloves look like, you know, what color they were. You know, dealing with my diagnosis, um, you know, um, and all the doctor visits, it, it really gave me a unique perspective as to um, not just the environment of being in a doctor's office and the color palette, but it gave me a unique perspective for how patients actually feel when they are, when their bodies are being examined by a doctor. Richard said there's something special that happens when illustrations and photos come together in a story. Scenes that start as sketches become much more real when followed by a name and a face. Um, I had one colleague tell me that um, he said the minute he saw an illustration, he, he thought it was very nice. It, it put him right in the scene. But as he read further, the minute he hit a photo, it's like, bam, it humanized it for him that this was something that was happening to actual people. AJC's key finding was complete negligence in state after state. Nobody was holding the doctors accountable. Hospitals weren't reporting the incidents to regulators even though they were required to. And in many cases, medical boards knew they had a sex offender practicing and found ways to keep him out of trouble. 
these cases and the physicians involved in them, their their actions were treated as something that was resulting from an illness more so than a crime. That this was kind of categorized as an impairment issue in the same way that um, a drug addiction would be and handled in very much the same way. So that um, when these, quote, boundary issues were discovered, it wasn't, the first thought wasn't, we need to call the cops. It was, well, we need to get this person into some kind of just treatment, assessment, and then figure out how we could return them to practice. The medical community dismissed the attacks as anomalies, freak occurrences. But the more Carrie and her team reported, the more they learned this was routine. Medical boards would actually cite physician shortages as one reason for their protection and secrecy. They said it would be a terrible waste to see all that money and time spent on a degree locked behind bars, or the doctor's reputations ruined. Some offenders would get slapped with a suspension or restrictions, like a chaperone with female patients. Others might be asked to leave a certain city or state for a time. Some were sent to therapy. I think it also relates to these cases being treated similar as to a, um, addiction issues, impairment. Those are routinely handled privately, um, you know, as an illness, again, that is kind of can be kept secret, you know, from, I mean, even with um, HIPAA being cited as a reason for that. There was no effort to track or monitor repeat offenders if they moved to different states or hospitals. So the AJC reporters created their own database of doctors and went doorstopping around the country. When confronted by reporters, many of those doctors repeated the justifications they had offered to medical boards when they were first accused years ago. You know, some people talked about having difficulty at the time. Some people felt like they were being targeted by um, folks who were um, trying to file a lawsuit. Um, Others felt like, you know, um, they didn't have any kind of sexual intent, and they shared that with us. Um, You know, others just... Just uh, and, and there were a number of people who didn't want to really talk about it in detail. I think the folks you talked about um, having gone to certain training and, and um, therapy, that was very interesting to hear what their experience was with that. Um, so it really varied a lot, you know, depending on who the physician was. I mean, I had a physician who actually told me really recently who wasn't included in our report, but who would, was somebody we contacted say they were actually suffering from some psychiatric issues at the time, and they wished that um, their colleagues had reported them earlier because maybe that would have um, been helpful. So that was an interesting conversation as well. But the reporters knew the most important voice of this story was that of the victims. So they cross-referenced medical board records, which usually just had patients' initials, with police reports and lawsuits. They wanted to find women who had gone public with what had happened to them. We knew those were really important because it was kind of hard to convey to people um, the kind of damage that these incidents can cause. Um, We'd read about it in the board orders, but we knew that it was important for that to be represented, what that experience is like to have someone who you just put all your trust into to the point that you don't question taking your clothes off and allowing somebody to touch you. And when that went the wrong way, what kind of damage that caused.
If you read the story, you get a pretty clear sense of not only anger, but also confidence. The reporters don't hedge or second guess. Every paragraph is a little story unto itself. I asked Carrie how they got comfortable enough to finally point the finger where nobody else had. I think we had so much reporting behind this, and the, re- and the heart of the reporting was reading, you know, hundreds and thousands of cases. We really knew how things worked because we'd really immersed ourselves in that, and we were very, you know, confident in what we'd seen, and we talked to, I mean, everybody we could find to talk to doctors, obviously, people, doctors who'd been disciplined, as many as we could possibly get on the phone, uh, medical boards. I mean, we really were very confident in how the system worked, and not just one reporter. I mean, several of us working on this, again, for a year, and, a, and an editor working just as hard and most days harder to, I mean, she was immersed in reading documents as well. I mean, she was literally, she read more documents than I did by far and was categorizing cases. So I think we were all very comfortable with our findings. The AJC reporters couldn't help but feel like they stumbled on another sex scandal like the priest in Boston after the Globe's famous investigation. The secrecy, the cover-up, the sheer scale of it across the country and over time. Wow, did this actually happen? And then you realized it didn't just happen once, it happened many times, and it wasn't just kind of brushed under the rug once, it was brushed under the rug numerous times. And I think, you know, we kind of, in the process of working on this story, we all went as a group to see um, Spotlight. And I think that was a interesting experience for all of us because there were some parallels there. Carrie said so far the impact has been immediate in Georgia, where it all began. The medical board set up a subcommittee to address the issue of abusive doctors in practice. They haven't sort of looked at this as a phenomenon, and um, I think that was eye-opening for them. It's not just something that, you know, happens, you know, just so rarely that it's... um, um, not something that needs our attention. I think that the, I think that's what's changed in sort of what I've been hearing since we published the series. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to stay up to date with all of our latest episodes. And head on over to ire.org/podcast to browse our archives. On our next episode, we'll be talking to Leonora LePeter-Anton and Anthony Cormier from the Tampa Bay Times about their Pulitzer-winning investigation into violence at Florida's mental health hospitals. The violence had essentially doubled um, and tripled in some cases, and and more than 1,000 people had been injured, including patients and employees. And it was sort of astonishing to us once we we sat back and looked at what, what we really had. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Brett Murphy. IRE Radio Podcast. Podcast.